At KeyBank, we understand what you need to run a middle market company. We bring a team of strategists and problem solvers to design and deliver solutions critical to your business's success. KeyBank offers industry expertise, investment banking and capital markets, payment automation, loans and lines of credit, plus equipment financing. Connect with your local KeyBank team. Learn more at key.com slash commercial. Welcome to the Grit Daily Startup. I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk, and this is a podcast about what goes on behind the scenes at startups. The good, the bad, and the gritty. Let's dive in. So I'm sitting here with Bud. Bud White, out of New York. Name, name of the company is Tracen? Tassen, T-A-C-E-N. T-A-C-E-N. We're in Miami, decentral. It's beautiful. Tremendous amount of people. It's and incredible. here we're with Bud. So the way we started this conversation for everybody to hear is like, hey, what did you find fascinating about Link2 as a company? Well... Like I was mentioning off camera, um, I've, I've always loved the idea of um, being able to sell private equity. Um, I've always worked for small companies, um, taking a lot more equity than um, paycheck. And it's tough to cash in that reward when you're maybe three, four, five, seven, ten years down the line and there's not a liquidity event. So um, I've closely followed a lot of companies that uh, you guys are competing against. Um, one of which NASDAQ purchased, and I always thought they were going to launch this like, you know, public-private market hybrid, right? Or at least like do tokenization of private equity in crypto, because NASDAQ also was doing some crypto stuff. Um, but when they purchased that company, it just took a player out of the market. And I'm, I'm thinking about all the guys like me that are holding private equity that, 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 that don't have these liquid markets, or at least even price discovery. Price discovery on a private market, like it exists, right? When you're taking a bunch of OTC trades, like you kind of know where that order book is, but it's never published, right? And I always think, you know, coming from a position of sacrificing salary, right? Like you kind of want to know this and want to be able to liquidate some or all of your, your assets. So when I found you guys and learned that this is what you do. I was like, yeah, yeah, this, I'm, I'm about, <laughs> I'm about your, uh, what you guys are supporting. But thank you, viewers. This is the end of the podcast. We don't have to find out anything <laughs> about that. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs, Two up. thumbs up. Well done. Uh, that's amazing. But uh, you've described what we do uh, absolutely. Uh, earlier on, you mentioned a couple of our competitors, uh, Ford, Shares Post, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Shares Post. So I'll just tell you the main difference between what they do and what we do and how we do it. They're actually brokers, so you can buy private equities from these companies and you have to go through a whole process and your minimum levels are whatever they set to be a minimum level. What we do at Link2 is slightly different, actually entirely different, is we actually, everything that you see on our platform, we're already investors in. We've gone through the process of going through Rofer. <coughs> we own the equity. So you as an investor, an accredited investor on our platform, spends less than two minutes on uh, pointing, it's on the app store, so go point at uh, a particular asset, research it, and buy it, and you can do that in less than two minutes. 
you can choose over the 20, 25 investments we have on our platform and you can buy it in less than two minutes if you know you've done your research. And actually, if, you're, uh, if you have an Uphold wallet, the transaction time is zero. Really? Yeah. So it's really cool. So let me ask you this. Like you guys have a, an asset cost, right? You get into a position. Um, you're ideally reselling it for some or more, right? Yeah. Are you taking the demand that you get on your platform and rebasing the price based on all of the bids and asks that you're getting <laughs> within your allocation? <laughs> because you're essentially becoming um, one of the better signals for valuation of a company at that point. So you've hit on a bunch of key points. So yes, price discovery is very important. And what we are seeing is some companies will come to us and says, hey, and we'll go to them and says, hey, if you're going to raise more money or if you're looking for a liquidity event and you want to know what the market thinks about what your valuation should be, you should be putting some of the stuff on our platform. Oh. Because then you get a reflection from investors who are very aligned to a public equity market investor. Right. Right? So price fluctuates according when we, we acquire shares, we are acquiring it on the secondary market or secondary shares. And depending on the price that we acquire them for, uh, and then we mark it up, is what you see on the platform. So it's run by a series. So maybe a year ago for us to acquire a particular company was a little bit more expensive because of the valuation that people were getting. Today, much, much less, you know, 30 to 40%, depending on the company. And so when we acquire those shares for less, the, the eventually investor pays less because we haven't, um, we've, we've programmed that into our pricing. Nice. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So is this, um, I'm thinking like, you know, the whole IPO process, um, the underwriters have to do all of their own research, right, on, on what they think the, the market can bear. Um, do you have a model where you're working with all of the underwriters where they would like put a small part, like you were mentioning before, a small part of the private to test price sensitivity before they go around and try to sell shares prior to like all the hedge yeah, funds and yeah. eventually... So uh, when you're looking at private at that level, how late in the game are they, right? So are they, are they close to liquidity event? Let's say, they are. Let's say they are. Let's say so they're, they're a so year out and they're starting to have like the conversation with like JP Morgan, right? And they're like... So I think what happens in that case is um, when we started out in 2019, we were doing unicorn companies. So we, did, we bought companies that were in the billion dollar range valuation. And by the time they got to IPO, it was like six months later, seven months later, and uh, we had six exits. And the pop-up in value was good. And uh, some of our investors, you know, got a return that was reasonable. Others didn't, uh, just because where it settled out. So we are starting to look at uh, growth companies with a much lower valuation so that the ride up for the investors is much more significant than getting too close to the IPO or m and Because by that time, we've got a lot of baked-in uh, valuation already. So we're, you have to balance between where you buy and uh, what the liquidity is. If you're doing that, then why, why wouldn't you come in as a minor investor in like a Series A or Series B? Uh, we are starting to do that a little bit more. Okay. So companies that are growing, uh, that we believe are in the right category, with the right management team, we'll start doing a few of those placements. Yeah, good questions. Hey, is this your podcast? I'm, I'm raising money right now, so I know all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to you, but sure. tell, 
a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm the chief product officer at Tassin, uh, co-founder as well. Um, Tassin, uh, well, actually, I'll tell you my background first. Yeah. So um, we're at a crypto conference, and this always shocks people. I've been in crypto since 2009. Nine. Nine, 2009. I worked at BlackBerry. We were using encryption. Nine, 2009. Yeah. BlackBerry. Two, zero, zero, okay. nine. Yeah. Um, but what people don't understand is, remember, did you ever own a BlackBerry? Yeah, okay. I did. Actually, I did. So you remember BlackBerry Messenger, yeah. right? Yeah. And everyone said it's encrypted end to end. Yep. Right? Okay, well, how do you do that? You do it with an asymmetric key pair, right? A private public key. And you broadcast it, right? You be, we, we send each other our private or our public keys, and then we can use the, the, that to encrypt data back and forth and decrypt it on our, our, on our sides. You know what that is? That technology is just a crypto wallet, mm. right? Think, think about like, how a crypto wallet works. And when I tell people, like people are all like, oh, crypto is so hard to understand, right? It's like, like, it's this crazy new financial technology. And I'm like, well, you remember BBM? They're like, yeah, I go, it's the same thing. I'm sending you money instead of texts. <laughs> like, oh, I get it now. But I've been in crypto since 2009. Um, was it, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area doing financial tech companies. Um, was the 10th employee at Blend Labs out of San Francisco, which did mortgage technology and IPO two years ago. Um, and then I moved to New York City in 2016 to get into, um, I'm not gonna call it crypto, it was using blockchain as a technology to solve financial problems. And it resulted in us creating a private blockchain and then building out financial workflows for exchanges like the Australian Securities Exchange, uh, clearing houses like the DTCC, um, Danny Man, a number of other, uh, other projects. You built the technologies for all of those companies? Cool. Proof of concepts. Yep. None, none of them, um, the Australian Securities Exchange is the farthest along of adopting it and putting it, uh, replacing traditional database software with blockchains as a, as a system of, of truth. Um, but everybody wanted to learn what, what could happen. Now, very simply, it, it, I kind of feel like I'm, you know, I, I made like a co cookie cutter process and just kept showing it to other companies. But essentially, when you have a financial workflow where um, different counterparties, it could be two traders and an exchange or um, different entities. It could be, you know, within a bank, they've got subledgers in uh, different countries. The, the data synchronization between different legal entities or sub-entities of the same company, the reconciliation cost from a data perspective is, is immense. Trading, there's people on the phone, 50% of the back office cost are people on calls with other traders saying, uh, I got 55 million in Apple coming to me, but you say 51 million, let's figure out where the, the error in the trade is, and they're working through that. Putting it all on a, a ledger that gets synchronized out is a technology that kind of like, it was the new technology in the room that everybody could adopt at the same time, right? And it, it resolved a lot of these, these issues. But um, that being said, I'm a believer in the underlying technology, not necessarily, I'm looking around and I see a lot of companies here at this conference that are you know, NFTs and hype and all these things that might not be around in a couple of yeah. years, but blockchain is what I believe in. So what I'm working on right now is, and we've been at this for three years, my business partner and I, uh, a way to do a crypto exchange where you don't deposit your asset. And for the longest time, people are saying, oh, okay, well, no one's gonna do it. You can just put it into Coinbase. You could put it into FTX. But we know what happened last month. 
right? Depositor funds were being essentially stolen, repurposed, you know, for, for very risky loans that didn't pan out and ended up being losses on, on, on the books. Um, now everyone's saying, oh, you guys might be onto something. Explain to me how that works, because as soon as you say something like, that, hey, you can deposit it, you still own it? Still, well, it stays. You, know, you still, you still own it. It hasn't and transferred from your wallet, right? So let me give you the example. Um, and it took me a long t- as a technology guy. It took me a long time to understand how money actually works, right? Because we grow up, right? Your grandma gives you ten bucks. She says, "Go put it in a bank account," and you say, "Okay." Grandma takes you down, opens a bank account, and you get a ledger. It says ten dollars is deposited in. But what grandma never told you is that you gave that money to the bank and the bank gave you an IOU back. They didn't, it's not your money anymore, right? And if the bank fails, you lose your money, except for we have FDIC insurance now, so now the government will pay you back up to a certain threshold. Crypto exchanges are the same. So I'm lending my money to an institution. You're giving giving, your money. I'm giving my money. You're giving your money. And you're trusting that their reputation and laws, we have laws about giving money back. But we've all seen videos from 100 years ago, like 1920s when there were bank runs, right? When, you know, there was maybe a million dollars in a local bank, right? And there were like $5 million worth of deposits and the bank mismanaged funds and people are banging on the door because they know that one in five people are gonna get their money back, right? It's crazy. Crypto works the same way, right? Crypto, um, you know, I'm thinking back to the, the the Bitcoin white paper from 14 years ago, peer-to-peer wireless transfer of value. It's unilateral. I can send you Bitcoin, right? But when we wanted to trade assets, let's say you have Bitcoin, I have ETH, a bilateral trade, there was no technology to do it at the time. So they said, wait, well, what, what do we have in the financial tool chest? Oh, centralized depository institutions. So Mt. Gox and eventually, you know, let's, yep. let's use Coinbase because everyone knows Coinbase here in America. It's essentially a business, no different than a bank, right? They take deposits, but the, the, the fundamental uh, uh, tenants of money are the same. You're giving it to them, yep. right? You deposit it, you give it to them. The same thing with FTX. And that's what people didn't understand. If you read the terms and service, terms of service of FTX, it says, and because there's been all of these screenshots that have popped up on social media, highlighted, it said, um, FTX is not only your asset, you have full control over your asset. That's, that's wholly not true, right? You, you gave a bearer instrument to another company, the company gave you an IOU back, them alleging that it's yours is not true. So what we built is a way to deposit an asset into a smart contract that still you and only you, your private key, is the only way to pull the asset out. But once it's in the smart contract and you want to put an order on an order book to trade, the asset in the smart contract gets locked. I, as the exchange, can't take it. I can just say, you can't withdraw it right now until you take the order off the order book. It's like when I'm buying a house and I have to deposit some money as an escrow. escrow. So it's an escrow. It's like, an es- it's like a mini escrow. Okay. Um, but in escrow, the escrow agent legally is holding, owning the asset. This is like escrow, but you're your own escrow, right? Because 
you still have custody the entire time. And that's the important part. And that's where the... the but just let me clarify. So I have given... I've put, I'm sent my money to where? Are we on the escrow example? Or, yes. Okay. So... It's you, my private key. I own, I own assets. Yep. And I want to deposit it. But I still own it. So... Uh, we talked about the misconception of money, yeah. right? Like when you deposit it in a bank, you, you don't own it anymore. So uh, the other misconception that we'll talk about um, today is the this idea of smart contracts versus wallets. They're essentially the same thing, right? Um, except for there's an extension of a wallet where it can also be your identity because you have a private key. So what we're saying is you have a wallet, right? Let's say you have one Ether in a wallet and we're saying deposit that into a smart contract, but the smart contract knows that only your private key is the one that can do the withdraw. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially the same thing, but when you put it into the smart contract, we can add additional features. And the one feature, one feature that we added is locking, which means you have one ETH, I have, let's say 20 Solana, and we want to do a trade. You lock yours in a smart contract that only you have access to. I lock mine in a Solana smart contract that only I have access to. And then we put our orders up on a centralized exchange, we match. When we settle, we have a decentralized updating mechanism that takes your Ethereum, my Solana, and, and does that update. But that's the only point in time that you lose control is when you gain control of the counter asset. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying, but is no one does this today? No one, people do different versions of this. So I think the, the best example of the technology working are decentralized exchanges, DEXs, right? Uniswap. Uniswap works in Ethereum, but that's it. So if you want to trade ETH for Solana, there's no way to do it asset to asset. People have built clever ways of doing it. Bridging is yeah. the one. Um, but I challenge you, look back in history, I challenge you, looking back, there isn't a month where a bridge has not been hacked and money has been stolen. So this brings up an interesting point where you brought up a little bit earlier, which is uh, look at the terms and conditions that FTX had. And they suggested on that one that you're actually, you retain full control of your money. That's what they suggested. And is, there, is that different from what the other companies might have done that are similar to FTX? No. Um, look at all the big exchanges. Coinbase, um, uh, Binance, Binance US, uh, KuCoin. They're all central depository exchanges. You're, you're depositing your asset. Um, the, there's been a push amongst the CEOs of the remaining large companies to say, we are fully solvent. And when, when they say that, all they mean is for every dollar you invested, there's actually a dollar there, right? So that when you withdraw, there yeah. won't be a run yeah. on the institution. Um, Vitalik uh, of Ethereum um, is suggesting uh, proof of solvency, right? Um, yeah. He's using Merkle trees and some complex mathematics to be able to prove that assets are there without sharing which accounts they're in and like, you know, not, not 
opening up the, kimono, the financial kimono to the world, but being able to, with a mathematical equation, say, we took a hundred million in assets, in deposits, and that hundred million still exists. Yeah. Right. Um, but it still doesn't prevent the movement of it. Right. Um, they could still do a withdrawal and then argue that they made an investment. Like some of the things that we saw with FTX, um, one is they they did use depositor funds, right? That was proven. Um, they did issue very risky loans, right? I, I think this entire meltdown of crypto, I think at least from my facts, um, goes back to the, the Lunaterra meltdown and that a lot of large institutions had positions in one of those assets or were lending money to somebody that didn't pay it back and there was a huge loss on their books that they were trying to make up. So if we look at the actions of FTX and SAM, um, we see a lot of really risky trades being made um, to make up the losses from Terra Luna Meltdown. So they say that that movement forward is we'll just have to like show and be able to prove to everybody that no, the money is where we said it is. But it comes down to not um, like, like FTX for example, was not a failure of crypto. Crypto, there was no chain level attack. Sure. It wasn't a failure of technology. People didn't go in and hack a bridge or, or hack you know, the servers and figure out the keys and pull stuff down. It was, it was a breakdown of character, right? And the thing is, with crypto, we, like the Satoshi's white paper from 14 years ago was talking about you know, no one person should be able to block the, the transfer of value from me to you, right? But then as soon as you deposit anything into a central uh, institution, even if they're doing proof of solvency, you're now not relying on a network, right? A democracy yeah. for our, our transactions. You're boiling it down and making it riskier and riskier to smaller subsets of people that can be bad actors. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you have a CEO that's actually controlling with an iron fist an entire company, it's one person that can be corrupt. Yeah where your assets are lost. So this is, uh, but I got to tell you, this is really a fascinating and interesting uh, conversation, especially when we start off with the concept of what is money? Mm -hmm. And then you've got the whole conversation today that's going on, which is DeFi, CeFi, um, distributed ledger technology, and all of that conversation going on today. You see what's happening. And then you've got these various meltdowns with FTX and various other companies, and who knows what's coming next with the domino effect. And there's the whole... retrenchment of enthusiasm but you clearly pointed out it wasn't a failure of the crypto or the technology it was just a failure of character rather than anything else but it still creates this feeling of like uh, and, and the reality is I lost my money right however you want to slice it I lost my money where did it go so this conversation really fascinates me and I think I want to do another podcast on that aspect but I'm particularly interested in learning a little bit more, and we don't have a lot of time. I want to learn a little bit more about your history and looking at this since 2009 and obviously 2016, and now 2022, and the last three years you said you spent building this, this infrastructure, this technology infrastructure. Um, I don't, how far have you got with this, and what's the reaction there? Sure. Um. So there's a few components. There's a decentralized settlement layer 
which is essentially you know, Bitcoin was peer-to-peer -peer for a unilateral, right? One asset going one way. Our decentralized ecosystem is peer-to-peer -peer bilateral, right? Trade one asset for another asset. Um, that's been built. That is um, actively open sourced. Um, we're looking for contributors. If anybody out there wants to, if you like what I'm saying, reach out to me, please. Uh, where? <laughs> uh, on Twitter, I'm 0xbud. On uh, Telegram, I'm budw, B-U-D-D-W. And LinkedIn, Bud White, B-U-D-D-W-H-I-D-E. -D -D -E. Okay. Um, so that, that's been built and we're adding functionality to it. Um, now, we, you know, having a, a, a settlement network doesn't really do anything unless you have trade matching, right? So we are 90% done the exchange, which is a central order book, right? Like we talked about locking assets and meeting on a central order book because central order books are very efficient for price discovery. They're very efficient for um, not having slippage because you can get really good liquidity built out from uh, market makers on yep. an order book. Um, we previewed and, and showed a live demo at Money 2020 in October. And uh, in Q1 next year, we're going to um, get Testnet going and we're, we're hoping to get people trading. The thing is, if we launch this too early and we don't test enough, we're going to follow the same fate as Terra Luna. Sure. Right? Terra Luna was a great, uh, I always call it a, a maths PhD project that hit the market before you know, it had enough like, like, um, vetting amongst yep. um, other PhDs. Uh, it was a great idea, but it needed a bit more baking. And, and that's kind of where we're at. Right? We, we, I can demonstrate, yeah, I don't have it up and running, but I can show you how to connect with a wallet, how to get it in, how to lock it, how to do trade matching and, and settlement and everything. But um, yeah, we, we're, we're going to spend Q1 testing the heck out of it. So I want to be a little clearer when you're looking through the audience and saying, this is what we need. So you need people to do what exactly on the one hand? Uh, the second hand is uh, the second stage, obviously, are you looking to raise more money? So is that an early stage raise? mid-stage raise and so when you're looking for people to con make contributions it's both on maybe the assets they have to test against so I'll look at the camera we want you to do testing for us so come on board um, we're, we're starting with testnet we want you to we'll give you fake assets go around and trade there's actual money bounties for logging bugs and for use, use, usage goals, right? So we'll give you fake money, you play around, just we want to get volume on the network, start stress testing it. There's um, money to be made for doing code reviews for us, right? And, and actually looking through and making sure that the open source stuff that we have is correct, or if you want to add to it, there, there's bounties available for that. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're doing a raise, um, we raised um, a large sum of money 18 months ago through a token sale, um, and it was great. We, we went through the whole process of doing it correctly, legally, getting the money back into the United States because we're a United States-based software company, and then being able to use that to pay for software development and everything mm -hmm. like that. Um, but because of, like, we, we've always had this narrative of you shouldn't trust central entities because it's a single point of failure a single person point of failure you should be trusting networks of people it distributes the risk yeah right 
they said the same thing about mortgage-backed securities, but we won't talk about that right now. So we want to raise a traditional round to accelerate. We're about 90% the way done with the software. We need testing, and then we need marketing, right? Um, the, the fact of the matter is DeFi has had a much slower adoption than actual purchasing of crypto assets, right? I can very easily tell my father, wire money to this to Coinbase, click a button, and then you've just bought Bitcoin, yep. right? But to go one step farther and say, now take, it, take your Ethereum off that exchange, put it into a wallet, and then do this DeFi thing where you put it in a smart contract. Like that's, that's the barrier to entry, right? Sure. We're technology guys from Silicon Valley. That's the, the step that we need to figure out how to lower. So we need money to start throwing time resources on educating because people get the trust part now. And so when you build that, when you build what you're building, there has to be a like, we did what? What did you do once you built that? We built FTX that can't be stolen from. Okay. That, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. But thank you so much for your time. It's yeah, been it's a, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Grit Daily Startup. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. This podcast is brought to you by GritDaily.com, the premier startup news hub. More information at GritDaily.com. Once again, I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk. Until next time, friends. into your local Safeway for great spring savings throughout the store. This week at Safeway, get yellow peaches or nectarines for the member price of $1.88 per pound. Also this week at Safeway, value packs of Signature Farms chicken drumsticks, thighs, leg quarters, or picnic packs are buy one, get one free. Plus, get value packs of USDA choice boneless beef top sirloin steak for the member price of $4.99 per pound. Visit Safeway.com, download the Safeway for you app, or head in store to find more great deals at Safeway.